0: You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we chat with Osama, who is the founder and CEO of Point, the open commerce platform empowering merchants to transform and grow their businesses. Osama has spent the last two decades pioneering consumer internet, e-commerce, and payment services. Prior to founding Point, Osama served as the vice president of payments at Google and head of Google Wallet. Today, we talk about how PayPal influenced fintech. What are the benefits of being banked versus being unbanked? And with the change to digital currency, where are the opportunities? And what should merchants be able to do with all this new technology? That and much more. Enjoy. You are listening to Silicon Valley by The Investor's Podcast, where your host, Sean Flynn, interviews famous entrepreneurs and business leaders in tech. Discover how money is made in Silicon Valley and where tech is going before it gets there. Osama, I want to thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley.
1: Hey, thanks, Sean. I'm looking forward to it.
0: So, Osama, can you give us a history of yourself over your career?
1: don't want to ramble on anything, so let me see how far back I'm going to go. Born in Cairo, lived the first eight years of my life there, moved to the U.S. with my dad at the age of eight. He was doing his PhD here, so grew up in Oregon, then moved to California right after high school. Even in high school, I was pretty passionate about computers. I knew computer science was my thing. For my freshman year, I got my first internet account. I was fascinated from a local university, which is rare. And by the mid-90s, I knew this was going to change the world. So I spent as much free time as possible learning everything about the internet. started at AT&T Wireless as a call center person. to helped pay for college. And in my free time, I felt like my whole job as tech support would be to answer people's questions through these eight binders. So I actually emailed somebody in IT if they had the original documents, put them in a search engine, made it searchable and started using it to answer my questions faster. And I built like a small web application on my own PC. My boss wanted to fire me for loading unapproved software. But his boss, when he saw the request to fire me, thought, wait a minute, let me see what this guy's got. And it turns out that everybody around me had been using this application as well and all of our stats were better than anybody else in the national call center. So they they gave me a full time job building web applications at the time, intranet applications. Spent the next two or three years doing that until I joined Gateway Computers. They were around ninety-eight one of the largest e-commerce sites in the world. They were doing a few billion dollars a year in e-commerce in the nineties, which is very rare. And they were building one of the most complicated E-commerce businesses in the world because Gateway was a great, a great mail order company where all the enthusiasts were computer users and all using the internet, so it made sense to buy online. And so, being able to customize your own PC on Gateway.com was a very popular thing, and they were having trouble keeping up. So I went in there with a fairly large team to help automate the whole thing. It used to be you fill in a form. It gets sent by email to somebody who would call you back and tell you you did it all wrong and redo it. And so we built probably one of the best e-commerce teams, but one of the best internet engineering teams of the time to do the whole thing without a human being involved. In fact, the order would go to the manufacturing floor and get built and 15 minutes later, ship out to the customer. And then that group of people ended up at eBay when eBay in the late 90s, early 2000s, was having trouble scaling. Probably one of the few companies that weathered the dot-com storm and did really, really well and were scaling really big. It was the biggest e-commerce site in the world in the early 2000s. So I I moved to the Bay Area to work for eBay and help rebuild all of the founder's code so that it can scale. And after doing that, it felt like one of the most amazing, rewarding experiences because the people was just the best people I've ever worked with at the time, really early pioneers of everything e-commerce, everything transactional. But after solving a lot of it, it, it became more of the same and eBay had just acquired PayPal and it was a small, a really small company in terms of number of people, there were only 25 engineers or so. Most of the company was customer support people. Had a couple hundred customer support people and twenty-five engineers, but they had made such an amazing impact, and I was fascinated by that. So I I moved over to the PayPal side, and spent the next nine years at PayPal. First, being part of the engineering team, that ultimately running and most of engineering and product, and a large part of the business unit. After nine years there, I felt like we had dominated online commerce. But I saw that consumer behavior was shifting quite a bit and that people wouldn't differentiate between online and offline much anymore. So I moved to, to Google to build a wallet that worked in the physical world as well as online. We called it Google Wallet. It was very pioneering. We figured out how to put NFC technology to better use and put it in a smartphone, integrate it into the whole shopping experience, and replace plastic with this tap that you now see. A lot of people call it Apple Pay. But Google did it first. It was at Google that I realized that the smartphone would only be half the story. To really change commerce, especially in store, the, the merchant also needed a smart device, and that the consumer phone or tablet wouldn't suffice in an enterprise situation like this. after a lot of thinking, left Google to start point, which is that basically a smart device for retailers, a drop-in solution that can run just about any application and leverage the data in an interactive way. And between a smart device in the consumer's hand and a point device at the merchant, magical shopping experiences would be created. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm very excited five years in, having a lot of fun.
0: So with that, I got so many questions for you. But just to start, let's have a background. What is kind of the history of payments throughout mankind?
1: Look, this is an important question because it turns out payments is very hard to change. And there's a reason for that. In the last five thousand years of recorded history, it's only changed three times. From barter to coin. So in the early days people didn't have a common way to exchange value. You know, a bag of rice for part of a cow. And so coins were created as a common value and currency. And so we went from barter to coin and precious coin to begin with, but over time, precious coin became really hard to manage, really hard to carry, and interestingly, not the best medium for credit. And so paper was in the paper currency, backed, originally backed by coin or, or precious metals, but ultimately not backed by anything. So we went from barter to coin, coin to paper, and paper to plastic. Plastic is actually today... We see about 25 to $30 trillion of the world's $80 trillion consumer spend is already in plastic. We're on the verge of the fourth and maybe final change, which is a completely digital currency. It's not a, a digital currency backed by the paper or the idea of the, that came behind the paper as a standard, or the dollar being a paper currency but fully electronic from beginning to end. And Bitcoin is an example of, of something like that. But I uh, expect even governments to start issuing their own fiat currency. So it hasn't changed very much three times and we're in the, in the midst of a fourth. The most interesting thing is that, that up until 70 years ago, only governments managed the payments. And so the big change with plastic is private enterprise started standing in. Visa is actually as Widely known, a currency as any government currency. Is in fact most currencies. There are remote villages all over the world that accept Visa, (laughs) believe it or not, right? And that allowed uh, private companies to help innovate in money. And it was necessary this move to digital. It started out as you know the uh, the plastic bridge the way to digital. It started out as a way to do transactions online, enables online transactions for the most part today. In fact, credit cards e-commerce would have been a lot harder because governments are always slow to adapt to these things. So private enterprise enabling payments 70 years ago has made the internet transactional and a business, if you will, and paved the way for a lot of these other services to go digital. And as a result, the mobile phone becoming the centerpiece of everything we do in life there are a lot of things the first wave of the internet did for free and therefore limited it to a part of the population and part of our lives that's why we went offline versus going offline but the mobile version of the internet not only made it available to us 24/7 but the internet had already become commercial and therefore worthwhile for every industry to be involved in and so it's also created this democratization on both sides of spending and making money. The ability to you know, do things much more conveniently as a consumer because you can spend money digitally without having to go get it first from an ATM machine, if you like, as well as the ability for anyone to accept money when it's digital, no matter where that sender is. I mean, this was a huge idea behind PayPal, send money and receive money anywhere in 190 countries around the world. You literally took out a lot of middlemen because a basket weaver in a remote village could actually sell it directly and ship it to someone living in the developed world. And so we're just at the tip of that. You know, being involved in changing consumer behavior in such a large scale is very exciting.
0: Can you talk about your career starting at PayPal and the influence it's had and how it's revolutionized payments in general?
1: It's interesting because when I first joined PayPal, It was less about, you know, I didn't even know we were a payments company. And it's funny for banks to hear that now when I tell them that we weren't solving payments. We were solving for how difficult it was to buy things online. And in fact, I think that is the problem with the payments industry. They think they're a business when in reality, payments really shouldn't be a business. And only recently has it become a business. But as you go forward, a business requires a value proposition. And it was successful as a business over the last 70 years because there was a value proposition. And so as I researched history, the value proposition of payments turns out that it's increased sales. And the proof in that is even the largest retailers in the world will pay Visa and MasterCard a fee to accept payments when cash is free. So why is that? Because if they stopped accepting those cards, sales would drop. That's the proof that it increases sales. Now, as the world becomes more digital, It's important not to, because it's so widely used now, it's replacing cash. It's easy to forget that it's become a utility and less of that value proposition of increasing sales. But as you look to the future, that is the most important value proposition. Anyone working in the payment space has to solve for a problem where buying something or exchanging goods and services is more difficult. It's interesting. In those nine years, I saw PayPal help tons and tons of startups solve for that friction of exchanging goods and services. That's why it was successful. It started out with eBay, right? If I'm a buyer and seller on eBay, you know, eBay before PayPal, it's interesting. People would send in envelopes, cash <laughs> to each other. It's weird to think about that, but that's what was happening for the first few years of eBay. And not only would they send an envelope with cash in it to the seller, they would also pay their PayPal, or their eBay fees with an envelope with cash. It's just so odd. And why is that? Because even by the late 90s, accepting a credit card was hard. You have to go through a massive credit check with a bank that took upwards of four weeks, sometimes months, take six months to get approved. Only 20 or so percent of businesses were approved to accept payments. But more importantly, eBay was a P2P marketplace where it was all a bunch of individuals, millions of individuals selling stuff to each other. And they would never get approved. They didn't even have a business, would never get approved to accept credit cards. And so enabling somebody like that to accept credit cards in 30 seconds was economic freedom and enabled a large part of the internet. In fact, pushed the credit card companies and the banks to lower their, their bar for who should be allowed to accept credit cards. And it created several generations of other startups like Square, like Stripe, like Adyen that also came into this space, and, and hundreds if not thousands of others around the globe that all said, hey, if PayPal can do it, we can do it too. It was very rewarding from that perspective, enabling you know, millions of small businesses or sole proprietors to figure out how to take advantage of this thing called the internet. But back to this point of, you know, we weren't, we didn't think we were in the payments business. We were just removing friction. I think that's where everybody in the industry gets lost. And you take for granted if you're making a lot of money on, on payments today as compared to where this will go in the future. Because just like eBay as a marketplace had that friction problem and had PayPal to solve it while PayPal solved many others. If you think about every other interesting use case or magical service. That's come in the last few years, they've had to innovate on payments. And, you know, the best or most recent example is Uber. Isn't clear where that happens, right? You're not even pushing a button anymore, you're just walking out of the car and paying. And so that's part of the same idea of removing friction and making the experience much better. And I think that'll have an effect on almost every service in the future.
0: So if you hadn't worked at PayPal, do you think you would have? ended up found in Point?
1: That's a very interesting question. I'd say I probably would have founded a startup. I don't know if it would be Point or not. I think a large part of this idea was in the back of my mind at PayPal. I knew that even in 2006, 2007, I knew this idea of online versus offline would go away. And I used to think a lot about, we know so much about a merchant and we allow a merchant to know so much about their customers. By being in the middle of those online transactions, why can't that transfer to offline merchants? You know, it's very interesting to me that a small retailer doesn't actually know their customers very well today. A restaurant or bagel shop, you get a couple of hundred customers a day, maybe a thousand. The vast majority of those, you don't know who they are unless the owner is there day in, day out, every hour. And an online store and e-commerce became so popular because despite not having the human interaction, they tried to fill that gap with data. As a result, ended up knowing a lot more about the customer than they ever did with the human interaction. And this is why Amazon such a massive retailer today. They know their customers way better than any physical store retailer. They use this idea of filling the human interaction gap with collecting as much data as possible so that they can know their customer better and serve them better. Now, that phenomenon hasn't really happened at the small end yet, but all the technology is available to make that possible. And so this idea of point filling that gap also existed when I was at PayPal. I thought that I can do it through the consumer phone. So if you put the wallet in the phone, that you can give all that information to the merchant. He did that Google experience of trying to build the physical wallet first in a phone to realize that you had to have a device at the merchant. So I'd argue I would have started a startup, but I probably wouldn't have known that you needed a smart merchant device until I tried to solve it in the phone first.
0: So in your 20-year career in payments, what else have you seen in this space?
1: That's very, very interesting. It's so many things, but I'll try to divide them up. I think the most interesting thing that I've seen is how consumer behavior changed. You know, being in payments, you got a very broad view. Being in online payments in the earliest days, right, in the early 2000s to now, I got a front row seat to how consumer behavior changed As the internet came of age. I think about this often because I believe we're in a unique moment in history that's never existed before. For thousands of years, we had a world where the big and wealthy had more access to technology than the individual. And so enterprises, corporations, companies ruled the day. In fact, they told you what to wear, they told you what to eat, they told you what to think. As a result, we listened because we didn't know any better. I think what's changed, especially with the mobile phone, is we've taken something, technology, which was mostly available to really well you know, a small percentage of the population, the really wealthy, and democratized. Everybody has a computer connected to the internet every hour of every day. And in many ways, that computer is more powerful than the early adopters of computers and technology that got stuck on those legacy systems from their early adoption. And so it's interesting that the consumer has more technology at their fingertips than almost every business or enterprise or government that they walk into. giving consumers and individuals this freedom, not just to communicate, not just to make choices, not just to influence, but to control everything in their lives. And as a result, I've seen consumer behavior change with that empowerment to where the consumer is in control or more in control of everything around them. And so I saw the way they buy things change, the way they communicate things change, the way they're influenced. In fact, consumers are a lot more influenced now by social media, you know, they're friends or influential people. <laughs> than they are by a great ad. You know, if you look at the the YouTube phenomenon where, you know, you have mass creation at a level we've never seen before. Really high quality stuff getting produced by individuals. You know, you have these YouTube stars where no major corporation had to sign you first before you became popular. Tweets by individuals that can move millions or tens of millions of people to do something. So it's a fascinating time. And I believe that it's got ramifications for the next several thousand years. That's very different than the past.
0: So going back to the methods of payment, tell me what are the disadvantages of using my credit card that I'm not aware of?
1: Let me just first talk about why those advantages exist and then step back and talk about some of the disadvantages that I think are being solved. The reason these advantages exist, as I mentioned, you know, it's the first time private enterprise took the role of currency. And therefore, you didn't have to have governments enabling innovation, that takes a long time, and often doesn't happen. It opened up this corridor in a way that wasn't possible before. And it was probably the first real universal currency. You know, before credit cards, if you traveled outside your country, you have to buy these travel check things <laughs> or to exchange currency, which is very weird. Now you go anywhere in the world. In fact, I do a lot of travel myself. I rarely visit an ATM machine. Why? Because my Visa card works just about everywhere I want to go. My MasterCard, Amex, every hotel, every restaurant, every shop. I don't even have to think about it. In fact, now taxis and Ubers, and we just talked about Uber. So, this idea of making the global world a lot smaller and now extend that to online, I can also buy anything from anywhere in the world without having to figure out that difference. And so for a consumer, it's very, very empowering. For the merchant, it's a little bit more difficult. When it was early days and very few merchants had it, the ones who did accept cards were differentiated in a big way. But over time, as it replaced currency and everybody except cards that differentiation went away and retailers feel it's a lot more of a tax than it is a value proposition. And so, you know, that's probably starting to scratch the surface on some of the disadvantages because those costs are a necessary part of the equation that make cards possible. And as a result, have actually made them available only to a third of consumer spend around the world, two-thirds of consumer spend Is still done in other ways, and for until recently done mostly with cash. Now, interesting that seventy years in the car, general-purpose credit cards or cards, what you're seeing come out of China and Asia is a very different phenomenon with these QR codes as the payment mechanism, because the idea of cards and the rules around accepting them and the rules around spending with them were a lot stricter and required a lot more infrastructure to be built that wasn't viable in developing markets. And so those markets needed something else. And in fact, building that infrastructure also took its own time. And there was a faster way. So these QR code payment mechanisms, obviously Alipay is the largest in the world. WeChat Pay isn't too far behind it, but both of them out of China. There's about 30 or 40 now payment methods around the world that are QR code based as opposed to card based. Why? Because simply the, the printing of a card is a cost. And in the US, you know, relatively speaking, printing a plastic card is fairly cheap. In developing markets, it's pretty expensive. And some of these places like India and China, very populated. Printing multiple cards per consumer becomes a really expensive and time-consuming process. It doesn't even align with the pace of progress that the internet brings because just Printing and shipping a card that meets card standards takes days up to a week where you can issue a QR code instantly. So this idea of cards not being natively digital, you still have to have this fiat plastic even though you don't need it because the rules said prohibited card adoption around the world. And then the idea of the fees associated with cards was also prohibited on the merchant side. The interesting thing is as with all competition as QR codes and different payment methods came out of the east cards started changing even more rapidly. You know I had some role to play in that in pushing towards NFC so you get rid of the plastic. You know when we first created Google Wallet we wanted to mint cards for NFC use that weren't backed by plastic. We had a really hard time convincing banks to do that. They insisted that even though I can issue a new card into the phone, I still needed to print the plastic and send it because those are the rules. That's now since changed. It's been nine years or eight years. It's changed. You can actually issue a purely native card. And the fees are starting to change, especially in the, in the developing world. And many of the developing countries have also come out with their own schemes to compete with Visa and MasterCard, local schemes like India has Rupee and China has China Un- Union Pay. And their fee structure is way lower. And so what's created is this competition between QR code and cards that I think will end up changing both uh, because QR code also has its own problems. Think about paying with a QR code like you do with Starbucks, for example. You have to turn on your phone, open an app, find the place in the app where there's a QR code, open that QR code, and then scan it. A card is a swipe. It's a, actually a you know one second swipe. It's really fast, and NFC is actually even faster. You know those things will matter. As I mentioned, we're in this age of super convenience. Everyone wants things to happen faster, and so I see cards changing to becoming a lot more virtual natively, or digital natively, and QR codes, morphing with NFC. And I think what we'll ultimately find is each get better at the convenience part. But it also reinforces why the device at the merchant side needs to be smarter. It now needs to accept QR codes and cards and not just swipe and chip, but also tap. I need to be able to use any payment method at any merchant. That is like the golden rule of payment methods. Until there's enough places for me to use it, it's not really relevant.
0: For some of these emerging countries, a lot of the population is currently unbanked. Can you talk a little bit about banked versus unbanked advantages, disadvantages, and kind of who could win in this situation?
1: That's another fascinating part of the next decade. I think we will see by the end of the, this upcoming decade, by 2030, the whole world becoming, this question of unbanked goes away. But let me go back to your question first. What is it to be banked or unbanked? Two-thirds of the world, or a little bit more, are still unbanked meaning they don't have a bank account. Now, if you go back 100 years, it didn't matter because everybody had physical currency, paper or coin. That's how you interacted in a commercial way with your community. As the world becomes a lot more digital and as a lot of these services become digital, if you don't have a bank, it's a lot harder to get a digital payment method. And therefore, you're kind of left behind to go wait in line for things. And they still pay for it physically. I'll give you the best example I ever heard is about 10 years ago, I was in Kenya looking at the first example of an emerging market adopting digital currency in mass. M-Pesa, Safaricom was the local phone company owned by Vodafone in Kenya, and they had accidentally created what became a challenge to cash in a country that wasn't that advanced. And it was fascinating. The whole world went to go look at why that was. And very quickly, something like within the first five years, close to 30 or 40% of GDP was already on this digital currency. And so I went there as well to look at it. And what I realized, why the adoption by poor people in mass, it turns out it's expensive to be poor. Why the country had, the whole country had something like 500 ATM machines. If you're... A poor person living in a remote village and you ran out of cash and you wanted to actually get cash out of your bank account. If you were lucky enough to have a bank account, you traveled something like 12 hours by bus to go get cash out of an ATM machine. And if you think about it, that's a day worth of lost wages. That's expensive. All of a sudden this new M-Pesa service comes in where somebody can send you that Money digitally to your phone, and you got 12 hours back. And it wasn't the only example. If you wanted to pay, and I know it's hard to relate in the US, if you wanted to pay for your utility bill, you stood in line to pay by cash. If you wanted bread out of a bread line, you stayed in line to, you know, and those lines could be up to an hour long. And so a lot of your life as a poor person handling only cash is waiting in line for things or traveling to do a transaction. So the first set of services that came along with this was the ability to pay your utility bill through your phone with the cash you just got, right? Which saves you not only going to the ATM machine, but also getting back that hour from paying your utilities or whatever. And so a lot of the past required in every country around the world, a central bank said, if you will hold money on behalf of someone, you must be a bank. And if Especially in these developing countries, very few people, sometimes upwards of 80% of the population, didn't have a bank account. You couldn't do these services. What M Pesa had done was they used the vacuum of the central bank. There was something going on in government around 2008, and they used that vacuum to launch the service quickly without the central bank clamping down. By the time it was popularized, the bank would have riots if they shut it down, so they left it open. But it created this concept of you don't have to have a bank account to hold currency. A lot of governments around the world started issuing either banking-like or payment licenses to hold currency to mobile operators or third parties as long as you know somebody would vouch for you or had enough money to be credible, but it allowed the ability to create these services that replace a bank account. If you fast forward like I said, it's hard to say these people will be banked. Banks don't know how to do things on the cheap. A lot of these accounts are not profitable on their own because the way a bank makes money is taking in lots of savings and lending that money out and maybe paying you something on those savings. So if you don't have money, you're barely surviving. They really don't want you. They can't make money on you. And as a result, You know, the cost of maintaining a bank account, they call it a DDA, the cost of maintaining a bank account that moves money in and out that they can't lend isn't that valuable. And it's higher than the money they're going to make off of you. So they've resisted banking you. A lot of these new services make money on the commerce of how you use that money. And as a result, everybody uses money, no matter how poor you are. If they can make money on the providers of those services in some way or on the data, and as these services become more digital, the ability to offer more of those services and make money for the providers creates a unique opportunity for everybody to have something that looks like a bank account from a service provider that isn't a bank. And a lot of the challenge is getting governments over this, enabling non-banking players to provide banking-like services. But I would also say they're careful about it because one of the most important jobs of any government is to control money supply. And if you lose control over your money supply, that has huge consequences. But I think there's enough patterns now around the world where this has worked out that the momentum is in a really good trajectory for humanity. So how is
0: point? capitalizing on this new technology?
1: So we're definitely very interested in the markets where this is happening in real time. India, I think, will have, just like the US in 1957, creating the general purpose credit card and that turning into Visa and MasterCard, changing the way the world spends money over the next 70 years after that. I think India is now in the best position to define this new world of digital currency. What is the successor to the credit card? One, because it has a huge population. Two, because it's in the middle of this change from cash to digital. Three, because it's an emerging market, understands the value of financially enabling every single individual in the population. And fourth, because it looks like China did 10 or 15 years ago in that economic growth curve. And so it will create patterns that I think that other two thirds of the world are more likely to follow as it happened with the US 70 years ago. Point is right in the middle of that by the end of the year, we will launch our service there. It will look very different than it does in the US in that it's a lot more about enabling a merchant to accept any form of payment. It's weird. India is in the middle of this change, but they have lots of cardholders. They have almost a billion card holders. They have lots of QR code wallet holders. They have lots of cash. Cash is still king over there. It's in the middle of that transition and it's a enormous democracy, right? Lots of people, lots of sellers, lots of buyers, lots of suppliers, all benefiting from not just removing friction by digitizing payments between consumer and merchant, but even more interestingly, because the supply chain is also developing rapidly, digitizing the supply chain. As it gets tied to payments. You imagine, you know, one of the most interesting things that I think should be happening because all the technology exists, but has never happened in the US or Europe because of legacy is think about it. We hear this all the time. A small retailer doesn't manage inventory as well as Walmart does. Walmart has it lasted to the last decimal, they forecast weeks and months out they understand the consumer buying behavior because they have so many data scientists and analysts and so on they they do that inventory management as a science but if i'm a small retailer in palo alto i don't have that sophistication the biggest problem that merchants often have is they don't order inventory well and they always run out but that should be completely solvable if they had a very simple application on the system that takes their credit card payments to understand what they sell out of and automatically order it for them. They should never be able to run out of stuff. But that means the whole supply chain also has to be figured out. The whole supply chain already has digital payment mechanisms. And, but if you go to India, a lot of this stuff is being developed right now for the ground up and the ability to tie payments to the supply chain and automatic ordering. So this is an example of something we're partnering with in India that is very exciting.
0: Does a merchant have any advantage over Amazon right now?
1: It's hard to say right now. I'd say small merchants have an advantage over Amazon right now for a couple of reasons. But I do think this will change in the near future. The biggest mistake people make or merchants make is assuming that Amazon is in the retail business, that they're in the business of buying and selling stuff. And it's a mistake because Amazon doesn't make money on buying and selling things. You know, back to our example of payments. Isn't really a business. Amazon's strategy has been commoditizing retail. So nobody can make money on it. And as a result, they're in a better place because they make money on what they're really good at, logistics. That's why your Amazon Prime account is for. You know, the subscription you pay on Amazon Prime, that's how they make money. And their goal is to get everything down to zero. And if they sell things for their cost, And everybody else does that. Most people can't get down to their costs because they buy at massive scale. And as a result, they're going to have the best price and always get the customer. And even other big players who can get down to their costs start wondering what business they're in because they're not making money. Meantime, Amazon makes money on things like Amazon Prime, things like AWS for developers, things like advertising on their digital services because they have so much data. You know, the best ad is when I know exactly what you want, when you want it. If I'm always buying from you, then you know exactly what I want. So then charging for advertising to use that data to tell suppliers, hey, you know, pay me to help you sell better. So they have, they give away retail for free and then they make money on all these adjacent services. It is what the internet was built on. This idea of a platform business says, don't make money on your core, separate your core from your business. So if your core is search, do search really well and give it away and then go into the advertising business. And, and so this is, or if your core is social media, people interacting, you know, all your friends in the same place and having fun and then make money on advertising apps. And so if you look at every internet platform, it's made money on something other than its core business or its core, it's separating the core from the businesses, no core business. And so How do you compete against that? The interesting thing is back to what I said about consumer behavior change. The most fascinating thing is consumers are more likely to pay for experiences than for commodities. So they're willing to pay a premium. They're willing for you to make money on a great experience, less so on a commodity. It's why they search Amazon for the lowest price. Um, But if you give them a great experience, you know, it's interesting. Why do people go buy? a very expensive Apple watch. It's not cheap. Why do they even go buy it from the Apple store? 50% of Apple sales happen in their stores. Why do people go to the Apple store? They can buy it online and have it shipped. They can buy it from Amazon and have it shipped. Why do they go to the store? Because the store offers an awesome experience. The Apple store is always packed. Why? Because they focus on an experience. You feel, you feel something special when you walk in there. And in fact, that's not by accident. Apple spent a lot of time perfecting a recipe on you going there not to buy things. In fact, internally they've divided up the store into three parts: the part that sells you stuff, the part that gives you support, right, the genius bar, and the part that gives you education and go in there and learn stuff, right. And the reason they did that is because their goal is to bring you in to have fun, and then the traffic solves for itself. You will buy stuff on the way out, and you'll probably pay a higher premium for that. Why do people visit Starbucks? Not for the coffee. <laughs> you know, yes, we're, we're a little snobby in the Bay Area about our coffee. You know, it's not the best coffee in town, but they're all over the place. Why? It's the experience, right? Whether it's because you like to hang out on fancy couches with a lot of other hipster people, <laughs> you know, or run into people or like doing work with music playing in the background. Whatever it is, it's the experience. So people will pay for experiences. Retailers, can't make money on commodity in the age of Amazon selling it a lot cheaper. So if you create an amazing experience, people will come and pay you more for the same good. It's you look at some of the successes out there. But some of that experience you pay for could be Warby Parker, how I buy my glasses. Getting educated about the different types of glasses. And you know, it's actually a great price, but why go in the why do they have stores? Because buying glasses becomes an experience you go learn, you go pick. It's a fun process. I've done it. And so a lot of that experience though, interestingly, back to the example I gave, has to take what we learned online and build on it, not be instead of. And the thing that we learned most about e-commerce is you can learn a lot about the customer, even if you've never seen them. And knowing the customer Is fundamental to building a relationship. And a big part of an amazing experience is a great relationship with your customers. Uh, You know, in the era of big box retail over the last 60 years, that got lost as retailers became about volume. If you look at how big box retail stores are laid out, it's like a cattle farm. (laughs) You know, they have an entrance, they have aisles you walk through like a maze. And then they have checkout lanes to wait to pay them for. And we're all mice going through, or cattle, going through these things. And then, you know, following the process, handing our money over and moving on. That's not a fun experience. The worst part of that is they know nothing about you. And they could care less about knowing nothing about you 20 or 30 years ago, as long as you hand over your money. It's all about volume. And that works when you can make a tiny bit or a little bit more than a tiny bit on each transaction or each, each item. If that goes to zero, then people start wondering, especially now empowered with a phone. Hey, do these guys even care about me? Do they even know me? Those who know you better will start serving you or servicing you way better. Hey, have you looked at this? Hey, we know you like that. We know you about this, and this goes with it. Those become really, really important cues, and new generations care about them way more. So, those who focus on collecting data and using that data. To deliver great experiences in the store, no matter how big or small you are, you succeed. And I'd argue the smaller you are, the faster you can move there. Look at Amazon trying to move there in slow motion. They buy Whole Foods. If they're this massive, amazing retailer online that are making lots of money, why buy a physical store retailer? Because they realize that online retail is only part of it. You're never going to capture experience retail, full experience retail online. People want human interaction, and so giving them that amazing experience in store will work. They're taking their slow moves because they're a big, massive company. Every small retailer can move there faster on the back of a great technology as well as a philosophy around delivering a good experience.
0: Other than point, who else is in your space? Who's your competition? I've heard of names like Square and Clover. Are they considered competition or-
1: No, no, you're not. You're not off. A lot of people compare us to them and there are lots of similarities, but there are very important differences. Let me start with similarities. We all offer some way to accept payments. We all do it on the back of a smart device and we all leverage data to try to make that process better. Where it differs is in a few areas. Number one, we are the only open independent player. What do I mean by that? We aren't trying to make money on payments, both Clover and Square do. We want to be the operating system, the smart operating system that works at every retail countertop in the world, regardless of who gives you your payments process. Both of them require that you get payments processing from them, which also means that you can never leave them. You're stuck with them forever. It's kind of like your electricity provider is also your landlord. So yeah, that may be nice, but in that scenario, they can't turn off your electricity. Maybe you can't get electricity from somebody else. But, but if you did, you can't really find competition for that electricity. If they doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you're stuck with that price. For us, we are for merchant choice. We want you to have your choice of bank. We also want your choice of applications. If you don't like the way the Square app does something, you shouldn't be stuck to the Square app. You shouldn't be stuck to the Clover app. So we provide this openness across the board. You can have any bank, you can have any payment method, any processor, any application running your your business, and any hardware. We, as an open operating system, we work on multiple hardware providers. And we believe that's not just important for the merchant, but important for the industry because. If you think about why mobile phones became so successful as a ubiquitous computer, it used to be long ago that every phone maker had their own operating system and therefore their own apps. And so if you bought a Nokia phone, you were stuck with the apps that Nokia provided. If you bought a Blackberry, you were stuck with the apps Blackberry provided. And what's changed in the last 10 years is it doesn't matter which phone you buy, you have access to all the apps. And uh, very similar to Windows, Microsoft Windows, a few decades ago, you actually, the more operating systems you have, the worse it is. For the PC, Windows allowed lots of applications to happen because they were, for the most part, the only operating system, at least for consumer. And in the mobile age, Android and iOS, you know those two, okay, most developers built for both. But if we had 20, it wouldn't work as well. And so, in the retail space, we think there should be one standard, one open standard, and that's what we're pushing for—one open Android standard, as opposed to you know having Square over here, Clover over here, Point over here, Ingenico over there, Verifone over there. We think all of everyone should be running the same, and that's what we're pushing for. And that's probably the biggest difference.
0: What have been some of the successes and hardships that Point has faced with getting into the merchant stores?
1: You know. This is a space that's not for the faint of heart. Two players dominate the market today, especially in the U.S. and Europe, Veraphone and Ingenico. They've dominated since the beginning of credit cards in the U.S. and Europe. And while there are many players that have come and gone since, it's really hard because it was a, almost a closed club. You have to know a lot about building an enterprise device that accepts payments. We like the payment terminal because it's the most necessary device that any merchant can have. So if you think about why the consumer phone was so successful, or sorry, why the iPhone and smartphones were so successful, they weren't the first to try to put a PC in your pocket. BlackBerry Mobile, Palm tried before them. The reason they were successful is they convinced you it was a phone first, and everybody needed a phone. And so if your phone can do other stuff, that sounds pretty good. We came at it the same way. Instead of convincing every retailer in the world, no matter how small, that they need a tablet or a computer on their countertop, we come in with a nice-looking payment device. They're going to buy a payment device anyway. We don't need to convince them. If it happens to include a computer or a tablet, that's awesome, and it looks nice. And then we start showing them apps. The challenge with that is the payment industry had created these payment terminal devices, by reducing functionality to increase security. Because the more apps you have, the more opportunity for risk from a rogue application to steal something. And there's a lot of sensitive data, especially payment data. So the hardest part by far was creating a device that's open to third-party applications, but just as secure as these dumb devices, dumb single-purpose devices that were secured by doing one thing and one thing only, payment. And that wasn't just technically difficult because after we got over the technical hurdles, the industry didn't know what to make of us. From a rules perspective, we looked weird. And they didn't want to approve weird because it sets precedent. And so there's a lot of politicking we had to do to convince the industry that this was good for everyone. It took us three years to do it while we were building the technology. Then after that, one of the biggest differences we have from Square is Square goes after direct distribution. They go after the merchant directly in competition with banks. And what I realized was one of the reasons smartphones were successful was that Apple and Google didn't try to become your phone company. They worked with the phone company who distributed the phones. And I didn't want a piece of the market. I didn't want to steal a few merchants from their business. We want to be the standard globally. So our model was to work with banks as opposed to work against banks. And that's a lot harder because you have to start at the top, the biggest banks in the world. So we walked into Chase and WorldPay and said, hey, we're going to do business with you. How long have you been in business? "Uh, We just started. Do you realize we're working with 40-year-old companies over here? They've been doing this forever. Yeah, but we think we can do it better. Really? How many merchants do you have? "Uh, None. (laughs) So the awesome thing is we still convinced Chase and WorldPay, two of the largest payment processors on earth, to do this. A lot of it was just how amazing the solution was. And that got us a lot of credibility. But I'd say even those pale in comparison to, you know, building hardware is very different than building software. My whole life had built software and software, there's an undo button, right? You can actually just say, okay, let me redo that and roll it back out on the website. Hardware, you know, that's a month's multi month cycle. You can't undo a piece of hardware. <laughs> you know, it takes a year to put out a decent, decently working device. And if you made a mistake, it's another year to fix it. And it's very, very expensive. And so figuring out how to apply iterative, the internet age old iterative development model, you know, learn, iterate, learn, iterate, learn, iterate, how to apply that to hardware. was kind of challenging because I didn't want to let go of that. We knew the best products are built by Coming up with a thesis, building it quickly, putting it in front of people, and watching them use it, and using that feedback loop multiple times to make it better and better and better. You know that's how you build great software. We knew that's also how you build great products in general, but we didn't know how to apply it to hardware, and took us lots of money and a few cycles to get there. The result, though, was a game changer that the whole industry has now rallied around as an approach for how payment devices will look and operate in the future.
0: For people at home that are listening to this that may not have a visual in front of them, can you talk about the physical device and also could you give an example of a customer using
1: Point? Let me start with the way we thought about design. You know, when we came to be in 2013 as a company, it was just an idea. I had walked around to a bunch of retailers to look at what devices looked like at the time. And I remember walking into a Tiffany store in San Francisco and I didn't see their payment terminal. And so I asked, I asked somebody, Hey, do you guys have a payment device? And, and she looked at me weird and said, um, yeah. I said, can I see it? And so it turns out that this was a manager and she walked, walked me over and kind of the, to the back of a corner where she had her a little countertop and kneeled down, opened the lowest drawer and pointed to a conventional payment device. And it looked like a brick. (laughs) You know, that's what what existed. It's like a plastic brick with a place to swipe your card and a screen. And I asked, well, why do you have it down here? Don't you use it for customers? She said, yeah, every transaction, but it's the ugliest thing in the store. (laughs) And so I promised her that I'd come back with something that looks amazing. And so from that point, I also knew that looks matter. Retailers care about their impression on the world. Every customer walks by, they want to make an impression. And Tiffany's is arguably one of the best at this. But looks matter. And as a result, we went to work on, obviously, the technology in parallel. But we hired one of the best designers in the country. Told them we wanted to build a payment terminal. They actually didn't know because they were used to building consumer stuff. They're <laughs> like, huh? A payment terminal? What does that look like? They did a lot of research. We worked a lot together. And we said, we didn't know what good looks like yet. We took down a lot of requirements on how to make this better. But at the center of it was it must look amazing, not a brick. This interaction between consumer and merchant was important as opposed to a merchant-only interaction. And so it looks like an awesome tablet with artistry for where the paper roll goes. Probably the next most important thing is this two screen. We added a consumer screen to the merchant screen so it becomes a digital interaction. And one thing we didn't realize until we started testing it, when you ask for tip, it's really weird when the consumer puts their tip, they don't want the merchant to look at it immediately. Just weird. It's kind of like I don't want to be embarrassed, even if I paid you more. And so it's private thing. Or if I entered my PIN for a debit card, I didn't want you to see that. So this idea of swiveling didn't make sense because it felt like I'm sharing something private. Or if I rated you, right? So that second screen for the consumer, they get to rate the interaction. And so they may not want the cashier to see it, even though the owner will see it when they run the report later. And so, but it felt like an interaction piece we get a lot of feedback from our merchants that their consumers start seeing them differently just because they put this device on their caratine. They see them as as forward-looking. They see them as advanced. They see them as lit, as the kids say, (laughs) Uh, woke. The other thing we did was, you know, we did three different versions of the device to pilot merchants before we said, this is it. Let's put it out to market. Let's actually build the final one and that worked heavily uh, in our favor.
0: What happens with cash-in-hand businesses when everything goes electronic? And what I mean by is I've often heard that restaurants might have two sets of books, the ones that pay taxes on and the other one. Are they going to be pushing back on introducing a product like yours where everything is tracked?
1: And it's a great question because I'm fascinated at a couple of things. Number one, that was the biggest prohibitor to credit card acceptance in the early days. While, yes, it was hard to get a card acceptance account, many businesses also avoided it because they felt like the government would know exactly what they did. And they do. There's no way around it. But over time, it became more expensive not to accept that credit card because the amount of business that you lose if you didn't, then the value of keeping your your money off the books, if you will. And especially in a retail operation. I can argue like consulting business or yard work or things like that. It may be different, but I I still doubt it, to be honest. Because at the end of the day, the person paying has a huge role in validating currency, right? If the person paying doesn't have the currency you accept, it often means they will not buy. And so, as consumers become used to digital payments, it becomes nearly impossible to avoid. And so, I think, yeah, it just goes away. It's kind of like trying to avoid paying taxes. Once the numbers are there, you can't really avoid it. The second reason it's fascinating is, while the U.S. was one of the earliest adopters of cards, and therefore doesn't see this problem because the market automatically is going to cards and therefore the numbers are showing up. And while you may have flourished with a second set of books, it's not worth it. If you lose, sorry, maybe I'll give you a stat. In our numbers, we show something like 85 to 90% of a merchant's sales are cards. So you might be able to force half of your customers to pay cash instead of card, but you can't force 80 or 90% of them to. And a decade ago, it was probably 60%. And a decade before that, it was probably 30%. So it was easier to say cash only if you want my product. You can almost never do that anymore. And any business that is still doing that is literally losing at least two thirds of their business. It's crazy. And they see that the minute they accept credit cards. In fact, I remember about five years ago, In-N-Out Burger started accepting cards. I mean, In-N-Out Burger, you know, it's one of the places I was willing to go figure out where to get the cash because it's In-N-Out Burger. Why would they go do it? Because they're realizing even In-N-Out Burger was losing money (laughs) by not accepting cards. The other reason it's fascinating is if you look at countries like Brazil or China or Russia, even though they had been largely cash economies in the past, they've solved this cash problem, this second set of books, by introducing the need to have a printer that's certified by the government for receipts. They created a printer, call it a fiscal printer, and this fiscal printer has a memory module, kind of like a you know a flash chip or flash memory, and it, it was certified, meaning if you took it out, they find you. <laughs> And, you know, it had the whole wax label thing that you can't tear or whatever. But anyway, that held every transaction you ever did and every receipt you ever printed. And in conjunction, they rewarded consumers to report you if you didn't give them a receipt or if the receipt was off. And in China, the extreme was it went into a lottery and you could win lots of money by reporting people. And so it disappeared within like a year and a half. And everybody was paying their taxes. A lot of this was to pay the taxes. And so it's very solvable, you know, this problem of even with cash, it's just more expensive to solve because that fiscal printer in every one of those countries, was like a two or $300 item that you had no value for. <laughs> Cards is actually a cheaper way or electronic payments, digital payments is a cheaper way because it's inherently counted. You don't have to pay that $200. Governments are dead set on doing this whether you go digital payments or not because every single one of them realizes that there's a lot of money to be made off of retail. So what happens to those businesses? Unless you're a drug dealer and like doing something illegal, I think cash goes away.
0: Are there any situations where digital currency could actually be a negative? So for example, maybe in the Caribbeans, there's terrible hurricanes, tornadoes, and powers out for days, months, maybe a year to rebuild the infrastructure. What happens in a situation like that when everything goes digital?
1: You know, I was thinking about the New York outage last week. I don't know if you heard of this. they, They had a power outage for six hours in New York City. You know, the whole city went into emergency mode. Hundreds of people stuck in elevators and medical devices going off and all kinds of things. But I'll argue that Digital money is probably the last of your worries when the power goes out. (laughs) Yes, it's a problem, especially if it goes out for any long period of time, like days or weeks, but I think we have way, way, way bigger problems if that's the case. So I don't think it's a power outage. What we lose with digital, you kind of touched on this with the tax, the second set of books thing. I think the problem bigger than tax is privacy. Who knows what you bought? With cash, you get total anonymity. That's what you start to lose with digital money total anonymity. Arguably, governments don't want, don't want you to have total anonymity. Their argument will be well, you're sharing information with the government is still private. I think that's the argument that, that will keep getting made. And, and I think most of the population would say it's not private. Uh, but that's the biggest challenge. There is no privacy. Really Because you're sharing it with multiple providers along the way, and you're depending on all of them, including the government, to keep that information secret. And so today you could arguably hide a transaction from everyone except for yourself when money goes to completely digital. There are ways to still make it completely anonymous. I'd argue that there are forces, especially government that are completely against it for valid reasons, and that's the debate. And with Bitcoin, as you can see, you could still make digital money, as an example, anonymous. You could trade wallet QR codes or what have you, or Bitcoin codes, but my bet is the government forces all of that to be at least known to it, and then the question becomes, how private is it once the government has it? But, But that's the biggest downside. You lose your anonymity
0: with all the data that's being collected on everyone through transactions, how is this data really being used right now?
1: The last 100 years is defined as the industrial age, or I guess the last century was defined as the industrial age, and oil companies, and oil as a resource was probably the most important resource, the biggest form of energy, or most utilized form of energy, and, and oil companies became the biggest companies in the world. 2000, the top five companies in the world were all oil companies. You fast forward to last year, the top five companies in the world are data platforms. You know, there's a great Barron's article on this, but data has become the world's most important resource to mine. The interesting thing is, while oil is a finite resource, like most natural resources, data is actually being created at a a rapid rate. In fact, every year more data is being generated or created than all of history. And so what that does as a resource, very different than oil, is it creates a lot of noise. So it's good data and bad data. And the difference between data and information. And I'd argue 1% of that data is valuable. And the rest of it is noise. And separating noise from data will become one of the most important skills over the next century. Taking that valuable data, organizing it, building on it, complex data structures to be able to act on in monetizable ways will be the best way to make money over the next century. And you already see this starting to happen. I think Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, they all get this and they're amassing large, you know, massive amounts of data, turning it into, because you know, when you amass that amount of data, how do you store it in a way that you can quickly act on it? Crunching through all of it to make every decision becomes impossible. Summarizing it, if you will, attaching it to a user and figuring out what to do with that data for that user at moments that matter so that you can make money. Advertising, obviously, is the one that we keep seeing ads get better and better and better. Predicting consumer behavior, predicting what I call those super conveniences that people are willing to pay for as amazing experiences will be another. Solving problems that used to consume man hours in large amounts or solving problems that have a low fault tolerance So things you can make mistakes, detecting cancer, detecting medical anomalies early enough, that's where a lot of the energy is being put now. And interestingly, the opposite of it or the downside of it, that same technology being used for evil and how that gets regulated after the first few mistakes (laughs) occur as it usually happens, I think it's about to change everything we know about technology. I've always looked at human progression in phases, and it's interesting to divide human progression or even the impact of the internet into phases. You know, in the first age or the first chapter of the internet, it wasn't really commercial at all. It was all scientific and, and educational. The second chapter, you have to put a user interface on it. The web came about and made it consumer consumable, maybe not yet commercial. Third age became commercial and people started buying. It wasn't just brochureware or advertising or pretty websites, but people actually transacting. Fourth chapter, it became ubiquitous, not just going online and buying stuff, but also always in your pocket. And it started to branch out. We had social media, the ability for individuals to act as large enterprises and tell millions of people things immediately without going into a studio or going on TV or, but then this, this next chapter is really interesting because a lot of what we did with technology so far was to automate things the same way, but faster. We took what we used to do by hand or what we used to do normally and automate it. But this new one is no longer automation. It's more use data to do things we've never done before. So as opposed to the car moving you faster than a horse, it drives itself. That's kind of cool. And then I don't have to do it anymore. It will do it.
0: Why have you made payments your career? And then to follow up with that, what is the best way for people to find out more about Point?
1: I don't know that I made payments my career. You know, it feels weird to say it. I followed a passion. Like I said, I didn't know I was in payments when I first got in. I don't think of things as payments or non-payments. It's something that I invested a lot in that has a huge impact to humanity, a unique moment in time where that impact is exponentially growing. I found that that experience that I've built up was unique enough to the point where if I don't do it, I'm not sure who will. And that's exciting. It feels like I'm doing something that I can look back 20 or 30 years from now and my grandchildren will be proud that I I made an impact. I'm having a ton of fun doing it. That's what I mean by following a passion. It's just, I keep getting more curious, like what's over here and what if we did this and what if we did that? So there is no real master plan around it. It's just, I'm having a lot of fun and fixing some really big problems
0: what's the best way for people to find out more about Point?
1: Best way is by far point.com. P-O-Y-N-T dot C-O-M.
0: Osama, thank you for your time today. And I also want to thank Alan Tien, who is the man that made the introduction that allowed this interview to happen. So Alan's information is also in the show notes, aka Money Never Sleep. And look forward to having you back on this show, hopefully in the future when we have some, some more announcements on Point.
1: Very cool. Really excited we did this and i'd like to ask to thank alan as well all right thanks
0: thank you for listening to tip to access our show notes courses or forums go to theinvestorspodcast.com this show is for entertainment purposes only before making any decisions consult a professional this show is copyrighted by the investors podcast network written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting